0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Texas State Choirs Today. I'm their host, Dr. Jonathan Babcock, and we are at the Swakta Convention in Little Rock, Arkansas. And we're very excited to be talking with Dr. Z. Randall Stroop, who is the Director of Choral Activities at Oklahoma State University and is also a world-renowned composer and conductor. Uh, Dr. Stroop, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. Well,
1: it's my honor. I think this is a really nice idea that you have going here, and I'm happy to be a part of it.
0: Great, thank you, thank you. Since our uh, our main focus, our our main audience is undergraduates, I always like to start with just talking about your undergraduate experience. Where did where did you go to school? How did you, tell tell us about your undergraduate experience?
1: I think my undergraduate experience was I, I majored first of all in piano and voice. So, which is a little unusual to have a double major. I also had a minor. It's took hard. a minor in um, was in music education, by the way. I took a minor in economics and a minor in German. All. All at one big time. So you were busy. I was busy. I still graduated in four years, but wow, uh, no grass grew
0: underneath my feet. And what was the what institution?
1: I went to actually Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma oh, okay. for undergrad. Oh. Mm-hmm.
0: And certainly, all of those things came together into what what your career. You know, it is really now. did
1: because uh, as a composer, uh, of course, you can't know everything about every instrument, but certainly having a strong knowledge of the piano and a strong knowledge of choral and I was also a brass player uh, there so uh, of that part of it so I I felt pretty well-rounded in that sense.
0: Great, and I've also going through uh, your bio and such. You've had some wonderful mentors, particularly the one that stuck out to me was Margaret Hillis. Uh, Margaret Hillis was just you know she was one of the very, of course you know, the the very first symphonic choir directors that really. There was just such such spark in the music that she made. Tell, Tell us a little bit about working with Margaret. She,
1: she is an all business conductor she really was and i would fly to Wilmet or to chicago which is right below wilmette uh, once a month and i would spend two days with margaret two mornings i would take the train up to Wilmet to her home she taught in her office upstairs and uh from nine to twelve and she was at nine o'clock it started and exactly twelve o'clock it ended And uh, we studied all the large works, uh, you know, Brahms Requiem and Carmina Burana and Haydn Creations and
0: uh, just
1: all those. uh, That's what we did. And in the evening or the time between the two days, I would go back to the hotel and she would give me her parts to like the Haydn Creation or any of the big works that she had herself bowed. And I would copy all those parts. So I have her boeings and her markings on probably 30 large works oh my goodness And what so it is. she was what kind enough drove. to let me take them overnight and so i made copies at one of the copy shops there so but she was all business and she would often have visitors in her home like one one time i remember she had a, a visitor she named she says well danny is here and I, she said, it one moment. So I, I looked out the door, and there's Daniel Barenboim standing <laughs> <Danny>. at her, <laughs> yeah, Danny, in her in her uh, living room. And they they talked for a couple of minutes, and then she came back up, and you know, she's she never said a word about it. She just sat on, kept talking about the score was in front of us, but yeah, she was quite an inspiration. And I had her also come down to Omaha, where I was working at the time, and conducted a concert there for us.
0: Oh, terrific! Yeah, great. Mm-hmm. And I I have I have to give you some uh, props, I, I found that most composers are not really good conductors and vice versa, but you do both. How do you balance both of those things?
1: Hmm. Well, balance could be uh, just knowledge about both crafts. It could also be balancing just the sheer schedule of that's maintaining those two. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I ride every day between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m., just, just uh, without fault. So for me, it's a routine, and so the creativity is not something you just, like, turn on on the weekends or whenever you have a few moments. Mm -hmm. It really has to be something that, you, if you're serious about it, that you have a dedicated time to it every day. It's a discipline, and you find that when you do sit down, even though it's 4 (laughs) a.m., that uh, it's amazing how much thoughts come to mind because your body and your mind is just so used to it. It's used to turning on at that time. And, um, so you can and I imagine there's very little distraction. There's no, no, no one's calling at that. Hour. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, the day is fresh and, and you're not mulling over what you didn't get done the day before and all that, like you would in the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find it to be the best time at, uh, to do it. And then the conducting part really feeds that and vice versa. You know what works in rehearsal, and um, as a composer, you you know what works in rehearsal, and as a conductor, you're looking back at the you know the page, and so they, they, they both are mutually beneficial. So I I I really uh, they're very symbiotic. That relationship is, is oh, very tight. Yin and
0: yin yeah, and yang exactly. together. some of the influences on your composition? Right? I, I, I found a lot about your conducting. What, what you uh,
1: two, two main influences, really. One, one is Cecil Evinger. He was a, mm-hmm. an oboist at the mm-hmm. University of Colorado. But the main one was Norman Lockwood. Norman Lockwood and Cecil Evinger both studied with Nadia Boulanger, who's the great French sure, teacher. And, um, so I studied with Norman for about 18 years. He was like a grandfather to me. His lessons were always on Sunday afternoon and we would, um, work for about an hour there at his piano and he always smoked a pipe. He had, you know, the tweed jacket, <laughs> exactly what you would com- think of a composer. And then we would take a walk, uh, outside for a few minutes and, um, He had a little white house there in Denver, and um, then we would come back in and Vona, his wife, would make tea, and then we would go back into the piano room and work some more. So it was just that same... The whole ordeal took about two and a half hours, really. So, And he always took a special interest in me. And um, a lot of what I do now... If I'm not mistaken,
0: Effinger, not a choral composer. No, not at all. You're exactly right.
1: but you know, uh, there's a lot to be. I was an instrumentalist as well as a, uh, a choral, and uh, again, it's that sort of that general knowledge about about the two sides, which really aren't two at all. They're just one. It's big, all music. It's all music, right? And so, uh, I think universities particularly try to separate even instrumental conducting choral conducting instrumental methods choral methods and and I do think that that's negative because it is all one thing exactly. it just is there In should fact, just be methods
0: uh, our, I'm pointing to our producer L- Lucas we were just talking before this interview how we want to do other things we don't we don't just want to do choir we we want to mm-hmm. reach out and do other ensembles exactly. uh, other opportunities it's a much richer it's like, experience right and I, and I certainly teach that conducting is conducting there's no difference between t- conducting a choir and an orchestra no, and not I think at all. those times are kind of you know the, the days of the choral conductors that just did big circles constantly I, I, I think we finally come away from <laughs> that. I think you're right about that, <laughs> that, 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 that uh,
1: both of my con- my uh, compose my composition teachers Normand and Cecil Levenger they were uh, Composers first. I mean, they were they, they didn't really favor uh, ones uh, the, the voices over the instrumental or orchestral, so they were really holistic. I think in their approach, but I can show you to this day the marks in my music that they, their effect and what they taught me and how it's still being written into the music uh, that influence. So it's I really value that.
0: That's and it's great to just show that we as musicians are always growing and always oh, getting better and mm-hmm. and trying to make make it better. That's right. Uh, How do you go about choosing your texts for your pieces? That is a
1: very difficult task. <laughs> you can always choose the, you know, there's always a body of texts, maybe a hundred, that everybody writes to, you know, a lot of your Sarah Teesdales and uh, just a, a lot of Psalms for instance. Uh, but to really find unique texts that have not been set or haven't been set but once or twice is is tough. Mm-hmm. And it takes maybe out of a it takes me about eighty percent of the time in, in a composition in, in a commission, let's say, to find the text. About eighty percent of my work is finding the text and only twenty percent in writing it.
0: So, what are the sources that you use for You know,
1: your text? I go to be honest, I guess I do the old method. I go to the library. What you see on Google is only about five percent of the poetry right. in print and it's usually the hot poetry that, that they're mm, trying that to But everybody reads. Right, because they want to sell ads. Uh, frankly, I mean, you go to that poem and you're surrounded by ads. If it's a poem that's really obscure no one's going to look it up, then you're not going to. S- so that commercialism, I think, negatively affects our choice of poetry sometimes. So if you go into, a, 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 like a Amor de mi alma is one piece that I, mm-hmm. that I wrote. And I went to uh, Renaissance Spanish poetry in the library. And you know there's a whole section on it. And I spent the afternoon just perusing through poetry and translations. And that's what you have to do, you know. And so that's, that's the investment. Of, and that makes, uh, you'd be surprised how many pearls there are there that just haven't made it to the surface yet, if you will.
0: talking it it's striking me that yes most of the pieces i know of yours are not well-known texts no, they're yet not. they're and incredible texts they're, they're beautiful really text. they're, they're really exciting I or beautiful don't, but they... i
1: don't write my own text except for on rare occasion uh, because i think writing poetry is takes the same sort of craft time energy education that writing music does that architecture does that and so to say well anyone can write poetry yeah. is a bit of an overstatement so i th- i think f- there's so much master poetry out there that it would you would be hard pressed to write your own need to write your own now i have written a few maybe three or four in my i have 180 published pieces but i don't i don't make it a matter of habit by any stretch mm.
0: do you have any particular favorite f- poets or sources that you use?
1: I think Garcilaso de la Vega mm. is um, he's a renaissance poet of the Spanish Golden Age he's one of my very favorites uh, certainly everybody loves Sarah T's tale sure. of course um, there's just a whole uh, Robert Frost I've, I've said a couple of his poems and he's just an American favorite of course sure. Every, again everybody mm-hmm. loves Frost um, A lot of your Scottish poets, um, particularly um, Scottish and British, I'm really attracted to. So there's just it's just the fountain of uh, the fountain of poetry is so huge that there's really no reason to write your own unless unless uh, somebody's just doodling at the piano and comes up with an idea, right? Or and we all do that. Oh yeah, yeah, but
0: I would say nine times out of ten, those works don't come out very well because the composer's not. A poet, a
1: composer's not a poet. Yeah, and and you know, for those that like to do that, then I think it's great. They have their right to do it, but sure. I, I think, uh, but I think if they would explore some of the master poets, their their writing would even be better because they'd be more inspired by it. There's more layers of complexity within a poem. There's it more that you can the react form
0: to that you're going to write.
1: Sets the form, yeah if you had to
0: choose one if you had to choose conducting <laughs> or composing which would it be
1: well com- i would choose composing would you
0: mm-hmm. Do you feel like that's that's your right i hope that focus? i don't ever have to do that but no, uh, me too
1: <laughs> yeah but that's uh that's my true love i think is sitting down you know it's i grew up on a ranch in new mexico and uh, i'm used to being it's a solitary life out there, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm used to sitting in silence and just thinking and just thinking and you'd be surprised how much music comes through your head. It's, mm. There's no problem with thinking of tunes. The problem is sorting out the tunes, the one tune that you like among 50, you know, so but but it's because, you know, music is is created on a canvas of silence and one has to be in silence to, for that to start pouring onto the paper. But I think every human being has a great deal to to give if they only get in a, a position where they can actually listen to, to what's in their head. And it's listen it's incredible. listen and to the silence. Listen to silence, yeah.
0: One of the main things you were here to do today was the uh, conducting master class with the students that applied and, and mm-hmm. came in. Uh, we had six students this morning that you worked with. Talk to me about your philosophy. I enjoyed your work very much this morning. i, th- I, I As we were walking in and preparing for this, I, was, I think he was right on the money with everything. He said, you never said anything, don't do that, or mm-hmm. never do that. You took what the students offered and just made it a little bit tighter. Can, talk talk to me a little bit about your philosophy of conducting and our role and uh, what do you... What do you uh, uh, think is are the important things for us to tackle as com- conductors? What's our role in this whole...
1: I think to really try to recreate what the composer had in mind, as much as we know, obviously if they're a living composer, uh, they're number one in our age, so we, we share a common humanity in a time period in history where we understand the relationships that they may be drawing on, whereas with Handel, or Bach or Palestrina, you might, you know, you're not living in that time, that time period of history. So uh, we understand them, but not to the point that we might someone who's our own age and living presently. So our job is to try to, as the best we can, to resurrect, sonically resurrect what those black and white, that page of just dry ink, and make it alive. And as conductors, we have to do—we uh, have to communicate with the audience. Because if music, at the end of it all, if music doesn't communicate, then uh, there, it's pointless. It's just—it's just craft. It's just simply working out a, a part-writing exercise on the on the paper. It, at the end of it all, uh, you have to be able to communicate to an audience your thoughts, the thoughts of the the, the composer, and all of this this chain has to make it all the way to the audience, to be successful. And
0: we have to do that without making a sound. Without making a sound. It all has to be silent. It has to be be silent.
1: They say that 80% of communication is physical gesture, facial expression, and only 20% is the language. And that's why a political candidate, for instance, can get up and do a speech... uh, we don't know whether they really believe, and most of the presidential candidates, there's a speechwriter anyway, mm-hmm. they read it as they're hopping off the helicopter to make sure they have all the words pronounced correctly, that we don't know whether the candidate they actually believes that or not, because we don't know them personally. Right. But the way they say it and their facial expression, their manner, tells us somehow, maybe wrongly at times, that they're honest, that they truly believe that, and they have our best interests in mind. Now, do they? Well, we hope so. But we're basing a lot about, because we don't know any of our national candidates personally. Um, we only read about them and maybe what the pundits say about them. So it can be a really scary process. <laughs> right.
0: And we're going a lot on perception of perception. What, what we see. I loved in in the master class how much you talked about engaging your face and mm-hmm. how this is really where the communication comes from. they're that's not true. looking at our hands they're, they're not they're looking in our face and I find someone so often with my own conducting students that's the last thing they think about. Yeah they're, uh,
1: they're busy getting the patterns which of course have to be there it's, it's your craft. It's like being able to spell a, words and being able to write complaint sentences but you cannot communicate with your neighbor. You only know you only know the craft of putting uh, English together, let's say, but you don't use that to communicate. It's just a craft, and so you've you've missed. You didn't take that final step that puts it all together and uses it to connect with another human being. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and
0: I, I I try to tell my students that that's that's where the music becomes your own when you've put your own personality on it. When you when you've when you have conviction and belief in what you're doing and you're showing that, that's when it's your piece. It's not somebody else's or not a recording that's laying around. It's yours. You've made that music. And but you s- have to put your personality on it.
1: Some people interpret one of my <laughs> works, let's say, quite a bit differently than I did or I do. And I always lean back and go, well, isn't that great? Because uh, they have every right to to try to represent... My work, but also their uh, connection to the the piece, to their audiences in the way that they think is best, so that they can it can be organic to them. It can be honest, and uh, so there there's a, there can be a kind of a tightrope there to to see how much of your own personality as a conductor comes to play with. Trying to be really honest with with the score and what that you think the composer intended, so it, it can be a little bit of a tug of war at times.
0: We were talking about your compositional process of letting go of it, and you know, so you started. You've done all all of the work. You found the text, and then at some point, you have to say it's done. It's done. How do you How do you get there? And not then, well. And then <laughs> just letting go of it, and like you just said, letting somebody else do it mm. in a way that you didn't really think about, but not storming the stage and telling the guy stop. <laughs> you know,
1: sometimes it's better. Sometimes their interpretation, you lean back and go, well, I didn't really intend that, but now that I think about it, that's a great idea. And so... Oh, uh, that's great. I yeah, love that you're open to that. true. That's terrific. And you just lean back and, and then the next time you conduct your own piece, you integrate what someone else had just done with it. And you go, you know, that's a great idea. I think I'll steal their idea. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, music is fluid and we all should be in this business together and not be territorial... We certainly want to be a guardians of our craft and uh, try to constantly push our horizons, our parameters. But uh, I think we can do do that in a very civil way and really honor our friends and other colleagues that are conducting across the country and composing. And there's room for everyone.
0: Absolutely. it's It's not a sport where we're beating each other. It's true. As we, we are all in this commu- community all, mm-hmm. all together. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to, to do this interview with us. I, re- I really enjoyed talking with you, and uh, I look forward to hearing your next piece. What, what what's What's on the burner now?
1: Well, I probably shouldn't say this, but I have a piece that is due on February 1st, now, that is behind no. us. <laughs> yeah, <that's> I am <laughs> 35 days or so behind. Somehow, some, the creative processes don't care about deadlines, well, it yeah. seems like. I wish that it, they did because then I would be a little more on time. So, you'll find me the rest of the weekend really scurrying about uh, finding every available minute uh uh, to write. In the middle of the weekend, after I leave this conference, I'm conducting the uh, Beethoven Mass and C at Oklahoma State University on uh, Saturday night. So that'll be uh, a good interruption, but a little bit of an interruption in the process of mm-hmm. having extra time. And um, can so, can you like tell you us s- what it is?
0: What's that? Can you tell us the title oh, of the work? Oh,
1: well, it's a, it's a commission for a huge church in uh, Houston. It's their fiftieth anniversary in May, so it's not like that. You can um, you can put it off and tell them I didn't quite get it done. I'll get it to you next year. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Suddenly the fiftieth anniversary becomes the fifty-first anniversary, which isn't quite as celebratory as the fiftieth. So, so it's one of those that you will get it done. So, yeah. So I feel quite confident. I'm just running a little on the behind side.
0: But well, we look forward to that that coming out and all, all <laughs> your future pieces. We'll keep an eye on that well, one. Well, thank
1: you. I've really had a great time today. Thanks
0: for the interview. Absolutely. Thank you. And this has been Texas State Choirs. Today we'll be back with another interview before you know it. Thanks.